If technology becomes a roadblock to human interaction mm. and human relationships, I think that will be a negative. I remember Pope Francis once says that I look in my uh, in the liturgy and see everybody using a phone, and when I say lift up your hearts, people lift up their phones and take pictures. That's not the idea. Mm. The idea is to. Uh, you are supposed to be overwhelmed with technology in six days of the week. So at least once a week, when you go to church, leave your technology behind. Welcome to Coffee with Bishop Suriel, a podcast for all things Coptic. This is a conversation about authentic Christian faith, Coptic history, patristic writings, the family, arts and music, religious education, youth matters, evangelism, and much more. Bishop Suriel likes his coffee like he likes his conversation. Light, sweet, and scorching. We'll be joined by an array of guests who'll share their experiences, their backgrounds, and their insights to bring about an exciting discussion. And we hope you agree. Enjoy the podcast, and please welcome our host, Bishop Suriel. As we're joined by Professor Wegi Ishak in a series titled Professor Ishak, Coptic Family Man and Visionary Technologist. We are also being joined by Nader Hanna, the founder of CopticNN.com, who will also be asking some interesting questions of Dr. Ishak. This will be part two of our two-part series. Here's His Grace and our special guests. Your Grace. Irini Pasi, peace be with you. Welcome back to part two of our two-part series with Professor Ishak, and we will continue our conversation today with many more interesting questions. So uh, what do you foresee as emerging technologies of tomorrow? For example, how do you see the future of artificial intelligence and its influence on our daily living. We see, for example, now the uh, emerging of many electrical vehicles and uh, Tesla claiming that soon there will be a completely full self-driving vehicle. Do you think he, uh, Elon Musk is claiming that this is going to happen by the end of this year? Um, and all of these uh, emerging technologies, how do you see this? Um, in my position as a chief technologist at Corning, I'm, I'm keeping tabs on the mega trends. The, the what what are the technologies of the future? I'll tell you a list of things that I'm watching: um, augmented reality and virtual reality, where you wear a glass that take you to another space. Uh, 5G wireless network, where you will see at least 10 to 100x improvement in the speed of wireless communications. Uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, and I'll talk about that uh, later. Um, personalized medicine, uh, quantum computing, uh, autonomous cars. Yes, that part about autonomous cars. I, I I tried many Teslas in my career. I bought the first Tesla in, uh, in 2010, and I kept buying the various models. My wife has a Model X, and she likes it very much. 
and Eddie in, in, in New Jersey has two Teslas and he's enjoying the self-driving. Self-driving has like five different stages. The first stage is just cruise control, which is uh, legs off, feet off. And then uh, stage two where you have hands off. You don't put your hands on the accelerator. And then... Um, the next stage will be eyes off. You can actually close your eyes and the car will take you. And then uh, the next stage is that head off. You, you just don't have to think where you're going. Uh, that higher stage is not there yet. But you can put the Tesla and other cars on autopilot now. And it goes on the freeway. No problem at all. It, it, it's changed lanes for you. It can even read the traffic lights. It yeah. can go to exits now. So Elon Musk was right that autonomous cars will happen in the future. But when will it happen? There are things where he doesn't have control on because the roads and the infrastructure must help him. Yes. Right now when you, wear a te- when you ride a Tesla, you see it looks for the lines on the freeways. But what will happen if there is if snow no in Michigan yeah. or... or, or fog in, in Minnesota and you cannot see that. So there are new techniques called LIDAR, light radar right. that will allow you to do that. Will it happen? I think it will. Yeah. Electric cars, amazing. Amazing. You know, very quiet, very efficient, good acceleration. But there is a range and anxiety. I have a car that will take me three hundred and fifty miles. So yeah. if I want to go to Los Angeles and visit his grace Bishop Soriel, will I stop? <laughs> How many times will I stop on the, on, the, on the freeway? So until we have a 1,000-mile car, I think people will still be um, uh, hesitant. However, in Silicon Valley, you come and see the, the, the Tesla, we call it the Silicon Valley Prius. It's just everywhere. Yeah, It's yeah. just everywhere. I um, think he's one, about to make an announcement about a more powerful battery. Um, correct. He, he yeah. made an announcement already that in Fremont, in fact, um, looking here, where is my finger here? Says, <laughs> in that direction, the, the Tesla factory is uh, working on a new battery that will, is supposed, as, uh, according to Elon Musk, to take you for one million miles on an electric car. Yeah. Um, that, that is great. Now, artificial intelligence and machine learning, both are close to each other in terms of technology. You are, we are do, doing it. We are using it every day. People don't know that. When you, if you have a, a phone and you, you have a face ID, yes. that, that phone puts like a, a laser beam on your face and with 30,000 points from the forehead all the way to the chin and between the two ears and compare that data that reflects back into a data that's stored in the phone to, 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 to allow you to get in. Social media... Uh, when, when you when you go, the first thing you do in your phone, most people go to Facebook and Twitter, you find that it's personalized for you. It tells <laughs> you what you want to see. Yeah. Uh, look at Siri, my grandson who's eight. Uh, when I asked him a question, I said, I wonder what's the air quality? He will say, Siri, what's the air quality in Los Gatos? <laughs> uh, or, or take me to uh, San George. Coptic Church in Campbell, and and it will uh, give you the directions. And yes. 
those self-driving cars and, and, and parallel parking, uh, automatic parking, even when you send your email, the email is so intelligent today. It picks up the spam and put it in a spam folder. That's right. That's all artificial intelligent algorithm. Mm. Uh, when, you, when you search the web, you search the entire internet, but it picks the thing that matches your previous request. So artificial intelligence is happening every day. People are, are getting it. You don't know that there are artificial intelligence algorithms working, but uh, I think it will... It will uh, uh, over well, not overwhelm, but it'll dominate our lives in the future, and mm. and and it's good. For, hopefully, there will be no negative effect for artificial intelligence. Yeah, and maybe you could say a word. Uh, what you think about big data? And uh, as yes. uh, many people would say, you know, it's those companies, you know, that are able to gather all of this data that are the the winners. Correct. Um, you you see the big ones. We have six big companies here in the in the the biggest in, in Silicon Valley. You have Apple, you have Google, you have Facebook, yep. you have Tesla Motors, you have uh, Amazon and uh, Samsung, and all those companies, Microsoft. All those companies realize that your data is so important. It translates into money. Yeah. Well, how does Google get their money? What is what is their uh, money come from? All those ads that you see at the bottom of the of the uh, uh, of your screen when when you uh, just try to send the Gmail and and, and t- Nader will send me an email and say, well, gee, you know, I want to buy a house in Silicon Valley and I'm, I'm trying to get a loan." In less than thirty seconds, you will <laughs> see on the side those ads with loans yeah. coming. Now, are they spying on us? They are robotically and, and digitally spying on us. Yeah. How can they use this data? So far, the assumption is that they are using it wisely, but there are so many hackers who can get into it yeah, and, and make yeah. use of it. Uh, I believe that technology will always prevail. We cannot stop it. You, there are yeah. some people who say, I will never give my data to anyone. Okay, that's fine. In a few years, you will. Mm. It's it's uh, Life will be so digital that... Uh, you have to take uh, the the risk, and uh, you have to join the tech technology community. But it does bring up the concern of privacy as well. Correct. Privacy and, uh, is very important. Uh, when I did my family tree, I analyzed my DNA, and many people told me, "Well, you are giving your DNA. You have three things that are unique to you: my fingerprints, my iris." And my yeah. DNA. Yeah. So don't give them away. Yeah. Uh, they, they will insurance company will find what you have. I did that like eight or nine years ago, but I'm a technology guy. I, I want to be at the forefront. <laughs> I want to be at, at the edge, cutting edge of science and technology. <laughs> and it's 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 going to happen uh, soon to many people. So yes, the privacy is a big issue. Mm. The millennials and Generation Z, the new guys, yep. they don't care too much about privacy. Yes. Do you? Yes. Do you? volunteer mm. so what are your thoughts about the church's adoption of technology how have you seen that develop there are pluses and minuses i saw technology in email and managing management software accounting administration 
screens inside the church that help those who cannot understand Arabic or Coptic, uh, they see the translation English. Those are so good. Technology was very good for us in the past six months when we, I was just telling Nader, when we were streaming the liturgy. I think that was a welcome uh, yes. um, technology uh, for us in, in the past few months. But there are some negative issues. If technology becomes a roadblock to human interaction mm. and human relationships, I think that will be a negative. I remember Pope Francis once says that I look in my uh, in the liturgy and see everybody using a phone, and when I say lift up your hearts, people lift up their phones and take pictures. That's not the idea. Mm. The idea is to uh, you are supposed to be overwhelmed with technology in six days of the week. So at least once a week, when you go to church, leave your technology behind. Yeah. Uh, you don't use your phone in the church uh, the wrong way. Uh, and your grace, you know, technology spoiled us. When you use your phone, I'm sure you're using, since you mentioned you like Apple, you're using an iPhone. <laughs> yes. When, when, when you send me a text or ask Siri, you get a, an instant answer. We are gratified with instant response. Yeah. But when people start sending texts and questions to the priest who are taking care of 200 families, they don't get the response very quickly. So they don't get the instant gratification and they get impatient. And why is he not answering me? So while technology is helping us during our daily life, but we are expecting that church to behave similarly. I think people get agitated. Um, and and, and while I mentioned that in the past six months, streaming liturgy was good, but there are a few people now who are saying, I'm going to stream from now on. Why should I go to church? They miss the point. I mean, you're going to church to participate and get the communion. But yeah. staying home and just watching the liturgy yeah, is course. not the ultimate goal. Yeah. So I think... Technology is 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 okay. I am a technology guy. I mentioned to you uh, uh, that I like it, but I think we would uh, would like to leave it behind at least during the three hours or the four hours when we go to church. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you totally. There, the importance of that human interaction to be in touch with the spiritual our spiritual side. We the technology just gets in the way there, and uh, we we have to be very very careful. So I think your advice there is very valid. Um, Nader, I think you have another question there for us. Indeed, uh, Sayyidna. Thank you, uh, Doctor Wagi. You are the VP of a global R and D company. Uh, every day you make tough decision. How do you deal with criticism, and what advice do you have? for other leaders whose judgment is called into question? The higher you get in the organization, the more criticism you will get and the more accommodating you have to be. It, it comes with the territories. You just, if you, if you get defensive when people criticize you, as I used to do when I was younger, it shows, it shows that you are not confident, that you are... Um, 
you're just on the defense all the time, which is not a very good trait. So my advice to you as a mature and my with age and, and my uh, career and my experience, I advise people to uh, appreciate the other uh, opinion. Um, you can dislike the opinion, but don't dislike the person. Um, we teach people to ask for feedback. One thing I learned um, as I write performance evaluation for people who are reporting to me, my last question to them, and now please evaluate me. <clears throat> Tell me what you like and dislike. And you are supposed to take this information and act on it. So the next time they can see <clears throat> improvements. So don't take it uh, as a criticism as much as people genuinely trying to help you. The new millennials are very good at that. They, mm. they appreciate people telling them uh, what they see in them because you can't, you don't stand in the mirror all the time and people can read you. People are smart. So I would advise people to not call it criticism, but uh, constructive comments. Yeah, I think that that's how we develop and that's how we grow and that's how we improve by uh, getting this evaluation. Very, very wise advice. So, um, Professor Ishak, how do you understand the word innovation? What is considered innovation and what isn't? So, innovation is a, is a term that being very widely used now, especially in the last 10-15 years and it's almost losing its meaning now, but it was intended to mean invention plus implementation. Mm. There is a difference between invention and innovation. Invention is someone inventing a transistor. There were three people at Bell Labs who invented the transistor in 19, between 1947-1949, and look at what happened now. The big the tr transistor they invented was a big thing, like few centimeter on the side. Hmm. Now your 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 phone has more than ten billion transistors. They are so tiny, uh, you have to have an electron microscope to see them. They invented the transistor, but there was a guy. His name is Kelby in Texas Instrument who took that invention and made an integrated circuit and used it for the good of the human being, of the humanity. So. Innovation is invention plus Im implementation. Mm. Someone invented a laser and stopped right there. But someone took that laser and put it in at the end of fiber optics and gave us a communication network. Right. So I always say that when you invent something, you get the Nobel Prize. When you innovate, you get the money. Because <laughs> the people who, who innovate are people who <clears throat> capitalize on some ideas and take it to fruition. I will never forget the time when one scientist at Hewlett Packard came to me and said, I invented a new mouse, the optical mouse. And I said, please go back to your project. He showed me a big mouse. It, it was a big, huge device. It was bigger than my computer. So I wasn't <laughs> interested at all. And he said, that's, no, that's too big. Go back to your project. I didn't have the vision to see what he's up to. Yeah. A few months later, he came with a smaller mouse and put it on my desk, and it was shining red light. And he connected to my computer, and, and I can see that the cursor is moving on the screen. I said, ah. So 
the rest was history. Wow. We developed the first optical mouse. Mm. And today, there were 2.7 billion optical mouse sold. We also invented the laser mouse in 2003, and there are so many of them. So, so the, the person who invent the guy actually who invented that mouse was in Xerox Park. He has a patent. But the guy who developed it and made something good out of it was from Hewlett Packard. He's the one who got the money. So it's <laughs> it's innovation is can be in every day in the way you drive your car and be efficient driving your car and going to your office safely and and talking to people and getting the best out of them. Innovation can be on the manufacturing product line when you find a step that you can eliminate and expedite the process of making a device. So innovation in human resources, the way you interview people and how can you make it very efficient. Uh, imagine the pandemics now. Many companies are still hiring. Mm. How do they hire people? Yeah, virtual, online, right? virtual, yeah. But finding their demeanor, their face, facial expression, their passion, their knowledge, their creativity, the speed of thinking, all of those you can get on by training yourself. That is innovation. So Innovation is with us. It's becoming, as I said, it's becoming um, uh, a word that everybody is using, which is good because we are applying innovation everywhere. But I want to make mm. the distinction between innovation and invention. Yes, yes, no, that's uh, um, very interesting. And uh, as you said, it's the the ones that implement that at the end make them make the money and uh, yes. becomes very popular everywhere. Um, so you have seven patents, tens and tens of presentations, contributed journal publications, and several book chapters. Just too many to list here. What do you see as your most important patent and publication or presentation that stands out in your mind? Okay, I'll be very honest here. Yes, I have seven patents and I have more like 150 publications and book chapters. I think my best contribution happened by getting results from the people who worked with me. Mm. I, in, in, in 1999, my laboratory at Hewlett Packard was one of the best laboratories in the world. And we invented more than 1,000 patents. We invented the optical mouse, the laser mouse, the optical communication testing equipment, the wavelength division multiplexing devices that are used in the optical network. As I speak to you now, Nader is in Canada and your grace, you are in Los Angeles and we are in, in, in exchanging data over the fiber network. Devices that are used there came from our laboratory. When the optical communication network started in the early 80s, how can we test that there is a light coming from one end and going to the other end? We developed all those instruments, more than 45 instruments that are being used everywhere. We created $6 billion worth of products for our company, Hewlett-Packard and Agile, at that time. So... Those are my best inventions that the people uh, developed in my laboratory. Again, to be honest, I have seven patents and maybe one of them was used to develop a device that's called magnetostatic wave device. But it was used for a couple of years and then stopped. It wasn't used any 
where else. So while I have some patents, uh, they are not very active now, but my publications in the area of optics and fiber optics and surface acoustic wave devices have seen the light and they are in actual products that I'm really proud of. Whenever I go and visit a company and I go to their labs, I look at the instruments. Oh, here is the 8703 <laughs> network analyzer. I worked on that. My people developed that. And the devices inside I touched before they came into a product. So mm. that's what gave me more energy and more motivation to, to keep inventing. Yeah, and uh, certainly you, you have been a great inspiration for many of those that uh, have worked under you. Nader, I think you have another question for us. Indeed, Sayyidna, uh, this is a very fascinating uh, conversation. But it stopped me at the point where you said getting results and how you combine it with people. So please allow me to ask you this. What advice can you give to people about making sound career choices? When uh, I talk to youth and people who just graduated and I see in that they are anxious to join a startup, or starting their own company. I say, okay, if you want to do that, do it early in your career. So when you are young, you are vibrant, your your memory cells are all intact, you are, the, the speed of your processor is, is working very well, very fast. Do it now, don't wait until you reach 50 or 60. That's one advice. But the other advice I give to people, uh, Uh, I tell I told them that the story when I started my first job on December 1st of 1978 at Hewlett Packard, my boss, the guy who hired me, called me to his office. And he said, okay, you finished your PhD, now you are here with us. I'll give you three advice. Number one, don't use your phone to call people. Walk around. Okay. okay. I said, why? He said, when you walk around, you meet more people yeah. and you form a network. This yes. is very important for you. I said, okay. Number two, he said, be very positive. We have great environment here. The world is doing great. Being negative is very contagious. It, it demotivates people. Just be positive and, and, and smile and be pleasant. I said, okay. I didn't really understand what he was trying to say. And then the third advice he gave me, he said, you know what, if you wake up one morning and you don't want to come to work, change jobs. I don't want people who don't like their jobs. So imagine in your first day at work, your boss is telling you, if you, have, if you wake up and you don't want to come to work, change jobs. So I actually took those three advices and, and dwelled on them. And I said, he's very smart. Yes. What he's really trying to tell me is, number one, build and enhance your network. On my iPhone, my contact list has 6,482 contacts. Probably wow. half, half of them are garbage. The other half, half of them are old. And maybe one third of them or one quarter of them is what keeps me going. It helps you in your career. It helps you in your personal career. So enhance your and build your network. Number two, yes, ask the right questions. 
Knowledge is important, but asking the right question that make the difference is much more important. That's what creates opportunities. And number three, be positive. Being negative doesn't help. You put people down. When you put someone down, it takes a long time to bring them back. So be positive, but don't be arrogant. Don't be unrealistic. Just say, we are living in an incredible era of exponential growth in technology. I mentioned to you, AR, VR, autonomous cars, 5G, quantum computing, artificial intelligence, machine learning, personalized medicine, and you keep going. This is is amazing. So the three advices I would say, build your network, be positive, ask the right questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, this building of network is uh, very, very important. I remember when I was doing my uh, uh, master's and one of the pro- professors who's now in, in New Zealand uh, heading up the business school there, and yeah. he was on one level <laughs> as the leader, and most of his faculty were on different levels of the building. And yeah. then he started moving. He didn't stay in his office, but started visiting all of these faculty one by one where they were, and they were surprised because this had never happened before um, with the previous people. And uh, this is how he started to get to know his faculty, his staff, and also um, started to uh, uh, for them to know him and to expand that network and really understand what is going on uh, in that faculty. So, Well, I want to show something here, actually, <laughs> as, you, as you say, uh, your grace. I don't know if you can get that. Oh, I'll try to get it to the camera here. Yes. 6481 contacts. <laughs> yes. So I teach a class at Corning. We have something called Corning Research University. How to build your network. Don't lose a business card. Don't eat lunch alone. Eat with other yes. people. Uh, be a person of interest so people will talk to you. Keep refreshing your network because people move around. So if you follow those four, uh, I think you will be poised to build a very good network. This is is important for me. Most definitely. So what do you see as your major achievements or inventions throughout your distinguished career? I, I, I would say the thing that I have seen everywhere is that I was the manager of the laboratory that invented the laser mouse. If you go and buy a mouse now from uh, Fry's Electronics or uh, any other electronic company, uh, you, you, will, you will get the laser mouse. This is ours. Mm. Our name is on it inside. It doesn't wow. matter who, the, there are about 20 companies who are making those mouse uh, today, but the engine inside is an engine that was invented in my lab. Yeah, that was at Hewlett Packard. Yes, at Hewlett-Packard, and then at Agilent. Hewlett-Packard split into two parts in 1999, and I stayed with Agilent. And the laser mouse was actually invented in Agilent, but the optical mouse, which is the predecessor of the laser mouse, was invented in Uh Hewlett-Packard. Wonderful. So uh, let's take a short break, and we'll be right back. So now we're going to change uh, 
our questions tomorrow about the, the Coptic uh, community and also about your family tree. So how have you reflected on your journey as a Copt in North America? What changes have you seen, positive or negative? I've been in North America for 40, um, what's what, 1973? It's 47 years now. <clears throat> and I actually gave a presentation to His Holiness Pope Tawadros when he came here in 2018. I met him in Pleasanton, and uh, I showed him the waves of immigration from Egypt to North America over the years, starting in, in the early 60s when only 25 families just left Egypt and went to Europe, Australia, Canada, and, 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 and the U.S. And they were, they were rich people who didn't like the environment and came to settle outside of Egypt. So they didn't really look for the Coptic church at that time. And even if they looked, they wouldn't find one. But then the, big, the biggest wave started in 1968. And those are well-educated people who decided to leave and come here, single people and just married people who came here and, and looked, where can we do the liturgy? And um, there were very few priests here. Um, so they were so attached to finding a place, renting a place, going to another church, a Catholic, a Protestant church, to, uh, with, with a Coptic priest to conduct the liturgy. Then there was a big wave coming in 1972 and the late 80s and so forth. What I noticed, Sayedna, is that we are now at a point where our youngers, youngsters in the between six years old and 12 years old, are fourth generation. They pro their parents are probably, they are Coptic, but they were probably born here. Some of them have never seen Egypt. And they are not like us when we moved here and we were entrenched in the Egyptian culture, the Coptic culture in Egypt, and we tolerated anything just to attend the liturgy. Today's generation are different. They sometimes I look at them at the liturgy when the liturgy is seventy percent in a language they do not understand and they wonder. And once we switch to English, they look and they chant the hymns. Um, so I, I am afraid that we are approaching an era that the most of the people attending the church will be people who have never been to Egypt and their parents have never been to Egypt. Look at how many people are in marrying from outside our Coptic community, interracial marriage. I have a graph that shows all those waves and, and the pluses and minuses of those waves. So I see a change in our church. I see the need for priests who are born here who can speak the language that those kids speak. Yeah. I see the need for our church to accommodate them, not change our fundamentals at all. I'm not expecting any of those guys to come to our priest and say, oh, well, can you uh, just give me the the body? I don't want the blood. It, it won't happen, and we'll not tolerate that. Can yeah. you avoid seeing the Coptic creed? No, no, this is not it, but can you please, I love the Coptic tune, but can you speak in English so I can understand what you're saying? 
what is Tuskiva Las Imon Tokereo Eklenati? We tell them that this is Coptic. It's actually Greek. It's not really Coptic. And 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 I I, I had a few kids and I told them Tuskiva Las Imon Tokereo Eklenati, and they didn't do anything. But in the church they kneel. Because you know that this is a time to kneel. Yeah. Uh, but bow your heads to the Lord, um, or they, they will understand more. Um, we are a unique church that kept the faith, the tradition, the cultures for over 2,000 years. But when we go to another country, we should quickly adapt to the language of this country without changing any other thing. We were so... Brilliant, not uh, not me, the, the, the Coptic community, in adapting all our hymns to English. We have books in English. We, we should use that to attract those people, bring him into the church, and don't lose him. So it, it's it's a topic I struggle with. Um, but our faith is so strong, and when those children see their parents and grandparents adhering to the faith, they stay, and we want to keep them. Yeah. In our church, so. I, I totally agree with you and uh, uh, understanding the language of the country we're living in is critical. But I would take it one more step further and say that culture, you need priests that also have grown up here that understand the culture. You know, you could bring a priest from Egypt that may know English, you know, quite well, but doesn't understand, you know, American or North American culture or Western culture and how people live here, and how things are done here, and uh, he could fail dismally. Um, but thank God that now there are many young people that grew up here, or even born here. We even now have a bishop that was born here, His Grace Bishop Corollos, um, that you know studied here, lived here all of his life, and many other examples of clergy the same, um, understanding the culture and how to adapt what is suitable from the culture in our churches is very important. His Eminence Metropolitan Serapion here, for example, started to establish parallel churches, American Coptic Orthodox churches, where all the services are in English, welcoming churches for people that are not from an Egyptian background or Coptic background, and how to welcome these people into the church. This is a very important skill. So thank you yeah. for that. Yeah, I actually, uh, if I want to add one point, I, yes, you can do the entire liturgy in English, but I say that uh, we really don't have to do it 100% in English, but may, make sure that those people are not just looking at the screen and trying to read yeah. because you lose the connection. So sure. when you say Oporo, just interleave some English with it. When you say Taishori, interleave some English with it. As much as you can to make sure that you are not forcing on them something that they don't understand. I would love to have people to teach the Coptic language, teach the Coptic language, not teach the Coptic hymns, the Coptic language, so people can understand it. I don't think many people will go for that, but a few will. However, in the meantime, just try to uh, respect those who do not understand our language and uh, uh, the readings, the Pauline, the Catholic epistles, the Acts, the Gospel should all be in a language that people understand. Totally. And um, trying to preserve the Coptic language is certainly important for our church because 
You know, if you do lose your language, you also lose part of your culture. Uh, and uh, this should be, you know, studied in universities and in theological colleges in particular, that hopefully this tradition can continue. We are running uh, quickly out of time, so Nader has two more quick questions for us, if uh, you could please. Sure. Uh, well, I'm going to switch gear a little bit here for right. a second and bring in a family story. Uh, Dr. Wagi, uh, I know this is a very fascinating story, so I'll let you tell it. Could you please tell us about the time with your son, Eddie, who asked you about an assignment he had to do at school? Uh, tell us more about that. I know it's a fascinating story. You know, I remember many years ago, uh, Eddie came to me and said that the teacher is taking them to a computer lab to, to trace their families. You put your last name and you find a lot of information about your family. I think he did, but he couldn't find anything because there is no database for the Middle East, Eastern community. So he came to me and said, can you tell me more about the family? And I actually told him, I don't know much about it, but I do remember that my father gave me a piece of paper with 12 names of his, all his brothers, his father, the, the, number, the people that, some of the people I haven't met, and he wrote their names. And I got very interested in it. So I didn't know how to start. I went into, um, there was no Google at that time. It was, uh, I think, there was a Netscape, and you just go and, uh, and, and try to search. Uh, and, and I found the software. It's called Legacy uh, for PCs. At that time, I was 100% on a PC, not a Mac. And I found the software. I downloaded it. And it was so easy. Put your name, add a picture. Are you married? Your wife? You have children? Add the children. Your father? And suddenly I see 100 people on the tree. Wow. I said, wow. That was in 1997. So I said, okay, I'm going to start looking for more people. I used to go to Egypt on a Wednesday, arrive there on a Thursday. I stay at the, the hotel at the airport. Uh, I have many families waiting for me. I meet with them for one hour slot. Tell me your story. Taking pictures, writing names, their birth dates, and stories about them. And I come back on Saturday. I did that about 18 times. And the three grow to, be, to become about 400, 500. And... I took it upon myself. It took about three years. Um, wow. I analyzed my DNA. You couldn't find any relatives. Today, I have a list of 470 people. 11 of them are on the tree, but the rest are fourth and fifth cousins, which are very difficult to trace. But it is the idea of going and traveling. I went to Europe, and I, um, I went to many states in the U.S., to Michigan, to Florida, to, uh, to find people to Canada. And today I have 1,605 people on the tree uh, with their pictures and, and uh, stories about them, videos, and it, it's just a very comprehensive tree. It, it never stops. People are born. People pass away. People get married. Uh, people want to change their picture. So I gave it to Eddie and Andrew. I said, it's all yours now. Uh, I wrote a book, and I, I, I pass it to, to many of the cousins. Um, 
And I found some surprises, but I didn't find really big surprises. I didn't find any pirates or presidents <laughs> or any. I found boring engineers and doctors and lawyers and accountants and uh, businessmen. Um, but it is um, many people want copies of this, and and I, I keep passing around. Yeah, I think you should publish it. You should try to publish, even if uh, you know it's self-published. It would be interesting for also other families to maybe, you know, begin discovering uh, their family yeah, tree. Yeah, people are doing it. Yeah. People are doing it. And I know that Ancestry.com and 23andMe are going to map the Middle East. They believe that in 2025, they will have about 7 million plus uh, database for the Middle East, and that will be great because it will help us. Oh, because I remember the, the teacher, uh, when she talked to Eddie, she said, let's go and trace our families, and I think you can trace your family to Tutankhamun, and, and, and <laughs> that's hard. <laughs> we, don't have any, we don't have any data be, before 1870. I, I was able to go back Wagi Shafi Isha Alta Melek Hawash. Hawash is an Abnubil Hammam in part of Asyut in Egypt. And it, he was eighteen I have the I have the tree on my phone, so I can tell you that he was born Could you show us the tree, even just a small Yeah. This is like this is how it starts when you have the tree. you see the 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 you see the husband, the wife the parents and the grandparents and the kids. Awesome. Yeah, we'll so put if, we'll if, put if, an image on the screen uh, uh, once we Eddie, edit. Yeah. Sayyidna knows those people. Yes. So that's uh, uh, Eddie and Irina. And you keep going. Like if you go here, here is my father and my mother. Yeah. And in each one of them, if you go to my father, for instance, you see old pictures and videos about him. Yes. When he was in the Air Force, when he got married. And so, and then you go to my, then you go to my grandfather. Look at my grandfather and my grandmother. Wow. And you found those pictures? In, yeah, I found that. I went to Maslahat al-Ahsa in Egypt and I got the pictures and the birth certificate. Really? Yeah. So here is Hawash who was born, no pictures, but he was born in 1780. Awesome, awesome, Yeah, this is this is uh, this is something. So we'll we'll put up that. Uh, I have an image of that family tree that you had sent me. So uh, we'll put it up, and it may encourage more people to uh, sure. to look uh, more deeply I'll be happy into to help the them. family tree. Yeah, that would be wonderful. So what a fascinating conversation we have had with Professor Wagih Isha. And thank you also to Nader for your interesting questions. And we'll be right back to conclude. And I would like to leave you with a question and a prayer. Thank you, I think that our audience can agree that persistence, resilience, and determination go a long way towards achieving one's goals in life. However, 
Along with these, one must foremost place his or her reliance on God. In the book of Genesis we read, And Joseph walked with God, and Joseph was a successful man. And we must never place our reliance on our intelligence alone, but asking for God's support in every step of the way is critical to our success. It is evident from our conversation today with Professor Ishak that his faith played an important role in his personal life and that of his family. So a question. We heard today much about innovation and what it means. How do you think you can be innovative in your work or perhaps in your ministry at church? A question for you to think about this week. And the prayer. Let us pray this week for families as they are the fundamental Christian building blocks. Our home should consist of small churches, houses of prayer, houses of purity, and houses of blessing. And let us delve deeper into our family trees and see what blessings we can find and be thankful for such blessings. So I hope you'll pray with me this week. Stay safe and well. And I thank my two guests again, Professor Ishak and Nader Hanna. God bless both of you. It's been an inspiring conversation. I'm sure our audience will deeply enjoy it. Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. And stay safe and well. And until next week, be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Be sure to tune in next week when His Grace will be discussing theological education in the Coptic Church. Don't miss out on this stimulating conversation over a cup of coffee. To join the conversation, please visit our website, coffeewithbishopsuriel.org. After you listen, you can really help out by rating the show. Thank you for listening to Coffee with Bishop Suriel, a podcast for all things Coptic. To join the conversation, please visit our website, coffeewithbishopsoriel.org. And always remember, the best way to start any morning is with God and a cup of coffee.